Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new to Crosswinds, I'd like to welcome you. It's great to have you. My name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you guys are surviving the cold. It just, it's sort of getting to that January time where it just seems to go on forever and forever. And if you need to go to the coffee bar and grab an extra coffee or a tea or a hot chocolate, hey, have at it. I don't care if that keeps you going while we're here together. Now, just so you know, in the flow of our life as a church, we had been preaching through the book of Genesis. And then Christmas came around, so we took a little break from Genesis we started with January with Psalm 119 last week. We talked about the importance of God's Word. But today we return to our study in the book of Genesis. And if you're new, I really sort of feel bad right now because it's sort of like coming in for the last five minutes of a movie. We've been in Genesis for a while and we only have two chapters left to go. Genesis 49 today and Genesis 50 and then we're done. And I was actually thinking about, like, next week giving you guys T-shirts that said, I survived Genesis, you know what I mean, like that. And <laughs> I made it through all 50 chapters. Like, one of the, not many people in the world can say that. But then I saw that our budget was $22,000 behind in December, so that idea of the T-shirts went out the window. So you guys don't have to worry about those next week. But before I jump into Genesis 49, uh, since as we get to these tail end of the... These chapters are the tail end of Genesis. Since so much of this is all cumulative in this book, I need to get you up to speed a little bit to set the stage for what we're going to study. If you've been around with us, you know that what happened with Joseph and his brothers didn't get along too well. In fact, Joseph's brothers just were really jealous of him, and he was the favorite son. So they literally sold him into slavery in Egypt. And while he was in Egypt, God was very faithful to him as he kept hanging on to God during those difficult times. And God eventually took him from um, being a slave and being in the dungeon to being second in command of the land of Egypt. Really amazing story that we've studied in previous weeks. But while Joseph ended up in second in command of Egypt, there was a famine in the land of Canaan where his brothers were. And so his brothers were eventually forced to go to Egypt for food, and they ended up bowing before Joseph, their brother they sold into slavery. They didn't even recognize him. And through a series of events that we studied in previous weeks, eventually Joseph revealed himself, they were reunited, and the brothers, as well as Joseph's father, a man named Jacob, all moved into Egypt, where Joseph took care of them during the famine. The key thing to understand is when um, Jacob, Joseph's father, moved into Egypt, he was 130 years old. There's like dirt and Jacob, and they're both about the same age. I mean, they are really old. The question was like, how is this guy even alive? He hasn't kicked the bucket yet. Well, what goes on is that Jacob and the sons are with Joseph for 17 years in Egypt. He, He sort of like perks up and he continues to go on. And when we pick up this chapter, Jacob is now 147 years old. He must be like one of the oldest things on the planet outside of one of those like blue humpback whales. After that, you know, there's Jacob. And at this point, he really is going to die. He is just willing every last breath. In fact, next week in Genesis 50, we'll see he does die. He's right on the edge. Now, uh, 
a few weeks back when we studied Genesis chapter 47, right before Christmas, we saw that at this point, Jacob has called in his son Joseph, and he gave a special blessing to Joseph and to Joseph's sons. And he actually adopted Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, into his family so they would get part of the tribes of Israel. At this point, in Genesis 49, what happens is he calls the rest of the sons in, all 12 of them, and he gives them their final blessings before he dies. Now, when we think of the final blessings, we think, oh, he's going to say all nice and flowery good things for them and just tell them what wonderful children they are. Actually, it doesn't quite go that way. Uh, some of these, quote, so-called blessings are rather harsh. He's going to be sort of hardcore and call it like it is with some of his sons. And the direction their lives are going and what's going to happen to them and their, and their children and the legacy that they leave behind. Other of these blessings are going to be encouraging, like what we would think about. You know, this is definitely a fatherly good blessing as we go forward. Some of these blessings, I'm going to have to tell you, um, I just have to be honest. I think they're sort of funny. They're humorous. You will get a couple of laughs out of them. Some of these blessings, I think they're based on the fact that he's a father and that after he has lived with his children for a long time, he just knows his children. He knows what's going to happen with them. And if you are a father who has raised children, you know that. You know the tendencies of your kids. And you can sort of tell them where their life is going to go. Others of these blessings are clearly prophetic. Where God is... Uh, prophesying through Jacob what will happen to his, his children and their descendants for years to come. So let's go, uh, before we jump in, I want to give you, by the way, the two main points of this chapter right up front so you can see them and follow them as we go through the text. Here are the two main points I want you to take away. So if you want to write these down, just put them on the top of your outline before we actually get to any of the text. Here they are. Number one. Our choices have consequences for us and our children for generations to come. Our choices have consequences for us and our children for generations to come. Now, that may mean that our good choices bring blessings to our lives and to the lives of our children for generations. Our sinful choices can bring difficulties and frustration to the lives of our children for generations to come. And we're going to see today something else really important. That after we make a sinful choice, the choice of repenting or not repenting makes a huge difference for our lives and for the lives of our children that follow us. The importance of humility and repentance after choices is big. Second thing big idea we're going to talk about today is the incredible power of God's grace to take poor choices, sinful choices, and turn things around. What God's grace does is He can take a broken life and He can make it into a beautiful life. We are going to see in the lives of the legacy of some of these sons how God takes a total mess and makes something wonderful from it. And we'll see how grace just permeates some of these legacies of these children. So let's just jump right into the text. Let's begin here on Genesis 49. We're going to read the first four verses. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. 
Listen to Israel, your father. And then he starts in with his firstborn son. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But you are as unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Reuben is the firstborn son through his wife named Leah. And if, when you have kids, if you're, you know, young parents, you, you know how this goes. Your firstborn son, you have such high hopes for them. Like they get the best of everything. You just dote over them. You have such great visions for them. You sacrifice greatly for them. You dream about their future. It's your firstborn son. Now, by the time you get to the second and third born son, it, it doesn't end up that way. Let's be honest. At that point, the house is in chaos. Those kids just sort of go along with the ride, and they just get the hand-me-downs from the firstborn. But the firstborn gets the best of everything. And this is what Jacob says about Reuben. You know, Reuben, I gave you the best of everything. I had such great high hopes for you. I expected you to be the wonderful leader in the family. Everything was going your way. But you know what? I'm about ready to die, and here's the deal. I'm taking away all of your preeminence, just wiping it out. You know why? You slept with your mother-in-law. That's creepy. Like one of his other wives, he like went up and slept with her. Now, why did he do this? Because that sounds freaky to me. And there's an interesting thing here. He says, you know why? It's because you are as unstable as water. That is a Hebrew idiom for saying that Reuben was a guy who had no self-control and no self-discipline in his life. He is one of those men who just did whatever felt good at the moment. Just followed his feelings, and that's where he went. All over the place. So I do not see, for instance, dieting as ever being a big deal in Reuben's life. You know, whatever he happens to see at the gas station, that's what he eats. It doesn't matter if it's a ho-ho or a Twinkie, you know. Uh, you know, I don't have to lose weight. I will eat the ho-ho and the Twinkie. Now, the thing for us to understand is he is focusing in here specifically on Reuben's sexual appetite. The guy does not know how to say no. He does not know how to say let's wait. In fact, he even slept with Bilhah, his uh, stepmother. Now, those who write about this say that it's not just a one-time event that Jacob is referring to here. Sleeping with his stepmother is like the epitome of what has been a long-term character quality in his life with a lack of self-control. Here's the point of the story. A lack of self-control, a lack of self-discipline, especially in the area of your sexuality, will not just ruin your life, but it can ruin the legacy that you leave behind for your children and for your children's children for generations to follow. In fact, we see as you go forward and roll this forward and bend the biblical timeline, you find the tribe of the Reubenites. They cross the Jordan, and after that, they disappear from biblical history. That's the end of them. They are gone. So Reuben, he was born to the right family. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. 
Everybody was pulling for him. His father was looking forward to giving him preeminence. But with no self-discipline, with no self-control, especially in the area of his sexuality, it ruined his life, it ruined his legacy, and for the children that came for him for generations that followed. That's the first lesson we see from the first son. Now let's go to sons two and three. Simeon and Levi, they're brothers. These guys are interesting. It says, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Reuben are the second and third board sons, and they like to hang out together. It's sort of like Batman and Robin, but not a positive version. You know, like a negative version of Batman and Robin. They get together, and they get into trouble. And they are legendary for their violence. And what I picture them as, do you guys remember the movie Toy Story? Anybody? Toy Story? You remember Sid from Toy Story? <laughs> the guy who liked to tear the heads off his dolls, you know, and put them on other dolls. And like loved to strap firecrackers and like blow things up. And his other favorite toy was gasoline. This is what Simeon and Levi are like. These guys are violent children. And why do I say this? And why does Jacob say this? If you go backwards into our study of Genesis, you'll remember one of the key events in their lives. It was when we were in Genesis chapter 34. I used th this title for the sermon, and I got some feedback that you guys were uncomfortable with this. The title for the sermon in Genesis 34 was Date Rape. But that's exactly what happened. If you remember, their sister, Dinah, went down to the city of Shechem. And there she met the prince of Shechem, who brought her essentially to his bedroom, and then he raped her. Now, what happened from there? Simon and Levi, they were determined to get revenge. They have an overactive vengeance clan. And what they decide to do is they sort of trick uh, the prince of Shechem to convincing that all the men in Shechem have to be circumcised, which I think is a pretty bad vengeance themselves. And all the men of Shechem circumcise themselves. Three days into that, Simeon and Levi go in and they kill every last man in the city. They don't just kill the prince of Shechem for raping their sister, but they kill every man in the city for, for the fact that the prince of Shechem raped their sister. Overactive vengeance clan. These guys are major, big-time, violent folks. If they lived in California today, they would be the source of most of your road rage. You, know, you cut me off in traffic, I'm getting my gun out. This is what these guys are like. Now, let me uh, give you an example of the amount of cruelty that comes out of their lives. For instance, he says they hamstring oxen for fun. What does this mean? This means on Friday night, they're home, they're bored because cable has nothing but reruns. So they decide they're going to go out to the field. They find an oxen that's just out there minding its own business. They come up behind it with a sword, and they whack the tendons on the back of its legs so it can never stand up again. And for fun, they watch it sit there and moan and groan and die a slow and gruesome death. That is their version of fun. 
cruelty to animals. I told you these guys are really bad stuff. And that is why Jacob says, you know, you're going to be scattered in Israel. You guys are not getting any land in Israel. Now, let's just take all three of these guys, and let's put them together as a picture. When you look at Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, what you find is the most common problems that men struggle with, and what ends up ruining the lives of many men, and what ends up ruining the legacy of many men. No self-discipline and no self-control when it comes to their sexuality or when it comes to managing their anger. Isn't that true? Look at a jail. Go to jail. Who's in jail? Rapists. People who can't control their sexual urges. Pornographers. Who's in jail? Men who are violent. Men who have murdered and hurt other people. It's the same thing. These are the kind of people that end up going there. Now, here's the good news, by the way. The good news is that when you come to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And God helps develop self-control when you struggle with sexual sin. God helps develop, ang helps you keep your anger under control, and He brings you to repentance. So, in Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, we see the, struggle, the major struggles of most men, sexuality and anger. But there is a silver lining in this. You guys remember Levi? What goes on with Levi? Well, from Levi comes the tribe of the Levites. And God takes what is sort of a messed up past and redeems it and uses it for good. Let me just fast forward in biblical history, 400 years plus, actually 400 plus years. Uh, the nation of Israel, Israel develops. God takes them out of Egypt with Moses. They end up going to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And why he's up there, the people run out of control. And it says they rose up to play. And the play they're playing, they're not playing settlers. They're not playing Monopoly. Uh, what they, that's literally, if you look at it a little more detailed, they are fornicating. They are sexually out of control and loose at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses comes down and he says, who will stand with me? And who comes to his side? The Levites. And he says, go throughout the camp and strike down your brothers with a sword. Now, the Levites, you see, the, the background of them is they seem to get really angry when someone sins against them, right? When, when someone sins, they get really angry, and they can get rather violent. And God takes that, and He uses it. They go through the camp, and they strike down a ton of their own brothers. And as a result, God actually makes them the tribe of priests, the guardians of the temple, the guardians of God's holiness. You'll see the same kind of thing following the Levites throughout Scripture. For instance, you go to Numbers, I think it's chapter 25, if my, my, yeah, Numbers chapter 25. What happens is, once again, the Israelites start to get out of control sexually, and they start hanging out with the Canaanites. In fact, they discover that they can take the Canaanite women, young women, bring them into their tent and be sexually intimate with them when they're already married, and they shouldn't be doing that. And God actually sends a plague upon the Israelites at this time as judgment for this. But there's one guy who takes a stand and says, this is not going to happen anymore. It's a man named Phineas, who is a what? Levite. 
he goes in and there's a, uh, um, an Israelite man involved sexually with a Canaanite woman, and he actually shoves a spear right through both of them on the spot. Same thing. God uses this kind of stuff. He takes what is their anger, their violence, and he uses it for good. Now, let me just jump into some of these minor sons in the middle. And I'm going to tell you that I'm going to be sort of taking some of these a little bit tongue-in-cheek because there's not a ton of information about them as you go and look at them. Let's look at verse uh, 13. Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. The location of this tribe eventually leads to their prosperity. They are right next to Tyre. They are next to Sidon. They are next to these seaport cities and, seaport cities. and because of their proximity to those cities, they gain a lot of wealth. It's almost like Jacob says of Zebulon, you know, you are the natural businessman in the family. Where you go, you are going to end up wealthy. You're the tribe of businessmen. And here's another one that's sort of interesting. Issachar. In verses 14 and 15, Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. This is saying, Issachar, you are a strong guy. You are a stud. You are one of those few people who actually go to the gym and look good while you're actually there. You're a strong fella. You have tons of potential, but you know what? You are never going to use your potential. You are going to go into the promised land, and you are going to be content to be a servant for other people. Now, this is interesting. Issachar, they go into the promised land, and they become content to be servants of the Canaanites, even though they are strong enough to throw off the Canaanites. This is like the father who comes to his kid and says, you know what, you have so much potential. I believe in you. I see what you could do. But you've got to believe in yourself and not be, like, lazy about it. Now, parents, have you ever said that to your kids? You know, you have so much potential. You could do so much. But you have to believe you could actually do that. This is exactly what Jacob is saying to Issachar. Let's look at Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Dan turned out to be one of the smallest tribes in Israel, but they were also known for being able to strike panic into the larger tribes of Israel, sort of like a snake can topple a rider off of a horse when the horse freaks out because he sees the venomous snake below. Maybe the best example of this from the tribe of Dan would be a guy named Samson. Single-handedly, one guy strikes complete panic in the entire Philistine nation. And why? He's a Danite. Let's move on a little further. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. The Gadites it's saying, will become famous for their military victories and their military strength. And the best way I can illustrate this is when you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 8, you find what happens is, is David, you remember when he was um, running from Saul? 
he went out into the wilderness, and a group of men came around him to be with him and to be his soldiers with him. They became known as David's mighty men. You start looking at the David's mighty men, and you find out many of them were, were what? Gadites. Exactly what Jacob foretold. Now, here's some that I, I'm going to take a little tongue-in-cheek, so go easy on me on this one. It says, Asher's food shall be rich. He shall yield royal delicacies. Apparently, Asher is like the leader of the tribe of chefs. I mean, this is the guy who owns all the restaurants, makes all the good Italian food. This is what Asher is known for. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. In other words, this must be the good-looking guy who has the good-looking wife who has all the good-looking kids. I mean, it's the doe let loose who bears beautiful fawns. That's what I'm going to go with for right now, so go easy on me on that one. Now, Benjamin, it says, is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. It's saying that the Benjamites will become known to be vicious warriors. Now, we've, you trace this forward in biblical history, and this is what you find. The Benjamites were famous for their warrior skills. In fact, uh, many of them were known for being left-handed, and they're really good left-handed. Judges chapter 20 talks about 700 Benjamites who could sling a stone at a hair left-handed and not miss. Now, I can barely throw a rock right-handed, much less throw a rock left-handed at a hair and not miss. That's what these guys are like. In fact, during a time of civil war, what you find is there are 26,000 Benjamites versus 700,000 Israelites in Judges chapter 20. And in the first few skirmishes, who do you think wins? The Benjamites, even though they are greatly outnumbered. Very powerful warrior tribe. Now, I've covered the sort of the little ones. I want to focus in on the last two, which are Joseph and Judah, from which we'll get our main part of our message. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, and the blessing of your father are and the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. A lot there. We're not going to cover all of it. I'm going to cover part of it. Let's start at the beginning. He says, Joseph you are like a tree planted by a stream of water. In other words, you are always yielding fruit. You're never dry. And the idea of yielding fruit is whenever you come to an apple tree and you find apples in it, what do you do? You eat it and you are blessed by it. This is saying that whoever comes in contact with Joseph has been blessed by coming in contact with him. This guy is doing a great job. And it also talks about his branches being like hanging over the walls. 
what that means is that those who are not even necessarily supposed to be connected with him, those who are outsiders, are also blessed by him and by being associated with him. And isn't this exactly what happened in Joseph's life? First of all, primarily he was to be a blessing in his family. But he ends up going to Egypt and blesses the entire nation of Egypt. Saves them during a famine. Amazing how he does this. Now, it also says that archers attacked him and they shot at him and harassed him. And if you know Joseph's life, that's exactly what happened to him. His brothers tried to eliminate him. They tried to sell him into Egypt, hoping he would be gone forever. Mrs. Potiphar, you remember her? She lied about him and accused him of rape. And he ended up in jail. But here is the neat part about what it says. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Even though everyone was fighting against him, and it seemed like the world was falling apart around him, who carried him through that time? Who fought for him? Who took him out of the dungeon room into the throne room in one day? Was it because of what he did to save himself? Or was it because he cast himself and relied upon the Lord God Almighty? And God is the one who fought and protected him. Now, here is the great lesson for each one of us that comes right out of Joseph. Folks, each one of us are going to face times in our life where the world is going to fall apart, where everything's just falling apart, and it seems like people are fighting against us. The answer is that we are not going to be the ones that are going to save ourselves. Like Joseph, we cast our cares upon God, Cast your anxieties on God because He cares for you. And let God carry you through. Let God lift you up because that is what He did to Joseph and that is what He will do for each one of us. Protect us and carry us through. He is faithful. Now let me jump into our last guy, Judah. And he's our major one this morning. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Then it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. To understand the significance of what goes on here, you need to understand the background of Judah. He is the fourth son of Jacob. And you remember what the first three sons were like? Reuben is no self-disciplined sexually, out of control. Simeon and Levi, complete violent, out of control guys. Judah starts along that very same line. If you follow his life story, which we did in previous weeks of Genesis, after he plays part of selling Joseph into slavery, he ended up leaving home, moving into a Canaanite village, marrying a Canaanite woman who was completely apart from God, 
far from God, ends up having three sons through her. The first two sons we saw were so wicked that God struck them dead for their wickedness. Now, um, his daughter-in-law, a woman named Tamar, she was supposed to be married to his third son so she could bear children. And what would happen is, therefore, the family line would continue. But Judah didn't want anything to do with that. In fact, he sort of kept her on ice and kept her apart from uh, his third son. Eventually, we know what happened. Eventually, uh, Judah's wife died. He was lonely. He went to sheep shearing time. And Tamar, desperate to bear a son and continue the family line, posed as a prostitute, he slept with her and ended up fathering his own grandchildren. Major creepy. Uh, but here is where it gets interesting. At that point, what we learned as we studied Judah's life is a change happens. Repentance. Brokenness. Humility when he hits rock bottom. In fact, he goes and he moves back home. He becomes part of the family again. When it comes time for the brothers to go to Egypt and to bring Benjamin, the youngest son, along, and Joseph frames Benjamin as if he stole his silver cup, which brother steps forward and says, no, put me in jail for the rest of my life instead of Benjamin? Judah offers to substitute his life for his brother's. Major big-time change in who he is. In fact, he goes on to become the leader in the family. His life goes from being completely broken to being wondrously beautiful, all because of God's grace when he repents and seeks God after his world completely falls apart. And here's where it gets interesting, because there is a whole string of interesting prophecy that Jacob on his deathbed then makes about his son Judah, the one who sought grace and received it from God. For instance, it says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What this is saying is the scepter, the leadership of the um, Sons of Jacob will eventually go to Judah, that son, and once it gets there, it will not leave until tribute comes to him. And that's going to be a little difficult. I'll talk about that in a minute. But here's what we find as you fast forward in biblical history. The different leaders in Israel for the first 640 years come from various tribes. For instance, Moses comes from the tribe of Levi. Joshua comes from the tribe of Ephraim. Gideon comes from the tribe of Manasseh. Samson comes from the tribe of Dan. Samuel from the tribe of Ephraim. But 640 years after Jacob says this on his deathbed, the leadership of the tribes ends up in David from the tribe of Judah. And from that point forward, the leadership of the tribes never leaves. Just like Jacob said. You see the prophecy is interesting here? Now, it, there is some difficult Hebrew in here, so I'm going to try and explain this. It says in your ESV, it, the ruler's staff will not depart from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Now, some other translations will say until Shiloh comes to him, which still doesn't really help you much. 
Hebrew scholars point out that this is word for Shiloh is very similar to the word peace. And the idea is that the ruler staff will end up in the line of Judah until the one who brings peace comes. And to that person will be the obedience of all the peoples. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Who comes and brings peace? Isaiah 9.6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and the Prince of Peace. The leadership will eventually go to the tribe of Judah. It will stay in the tribe of Judah until the one who is the Prince of Peace comes, and to him will be the obedience of all the people. Earlier, we saw, in just a few verses earlier, that the tribe of Judah is analogized to a lion. Well, when you get to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, it says this, and it directly references back to Genesis 49. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, for the lion of the tribe of Judah, that is the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is a reference to Jesus. That Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who brings peace has come. And to one to whom all peoples will ultimately obey. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, that he has the name above all names, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Now let me just back up and give you this major flow. In Genesis chapter 3, after sin enters the world, the seed is introduced. The one who is the seed will come and he will crush Satan's head, though Satan would strike his heel. And the seed would come through the line of Abraham. As we studied this, it seemed like it would go on forever till he had his son Isaac. And the seed would come through the line of Isaac, who would then come through the line of Jacob, who would then come through the line of Judah, who would then come through the line of David. And the seed has come, the one who will bring peace. Peace in our relationship to God by taking away our sins. Peace in our relationship with ourselves and being peace ultimately to the world because he's the one who will conquer Satan, who has conquered Satan, sin, and death. Now let me just give you the applications again as we wrap up. First thing we learn from this passage is this. Our choices will influence our children for generations to come, either for good or for ill. We cannot get out of that. We look at Reuben and Simeon, and we see that their choices ended up really messing up their legacy. We look at Joseph, good choices, and it left a good legacy. But probably most encouraging of all is Judah, who started out with a life of bad choices, went through repentance, cast his anxieties on God, and looked for forgiveness and grace, and found it, and left the best legacy of all. Isn't that amazing? Now, the other thing to say is this. Jesus can redeem our sin and use it for others' good and for God's glory. That's very clear. That is the whole message of what goes on with Judah. Huge repentance. And he goes from a life that is broken 
to a life that is beautiful. That is also the same thing we see in Levi. He goes from a legacy that is broken to being the tribe of priests. And lastly is this. The line of the tribe of Judah has come. The seed has come. The one that everyone has been looking for. He is the one who has come. And he is the one that brings peace in our relationship with God. Brings peace in our hearts. And brings peace in the world. Let's pray. Dear Jesus... I thank you for this chapter, even though it's sort of difficult, <laughs> a lot of tough things to try and tease out and understand, but we know some of these big issues that are very clear, that our choices will influence our legacy either for good or for ill for our children and for generations to come. But I also thank you for your grace, that you can take our lives after we've made poor choices and bad choices like Judah. We've made a complete hash of it. And when we repent of our sin and we call out to you seeking our, your, your grace to restore us and to heal us, that you can take a broken life and make it into something incredibly beautiful. Of all the sons you could have chosen to bring our Savior through, Jesus, thank you that you chose to, to bring our Savior through Judah, the one who is the poster child of your grace that we don't deserve because that is so true for each one of us. We don't deserve your grace, Jesus, but today we turn to you, we seek it, and we ask it. In Christ's precious name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.